It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. This is going to be such an important episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity because we're going to be focusing on a name for God's people that opens up an area of doctrine that has been very controversial in the body of Christ. And yet there is a balanced view to this doctrine that I believe we need to embrace. Proverbs 11.1 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. But the next portion of that verse says, A just weight is his delight. Or when things are balanced out correctly in your doctrine, in your life, in your walk with God, it's pleasing to God. It's something he delights in. So I believe it will be a very delightful thing to God and to us if we approach this doctrine and scrutinize it and comprehend it the way it should be comprehended and then embrace it from God's perspective. Because we are a delight to God when we see things the way he sees things. Now, I know you're probably wondering what in the world and what in heaven and what in the Bible I'm about to refer to. In Psalm 22, verse 29, God refers to us, his redeemed people, as the prosperous of the earth. I'm sure you're ahead of me. That keys in with the doctrine of prosperity, which has been extremely controversial, especially in recent years. And yet there is a biblical revelation that is correct, that is true, that is praiseworthy, and should be embraced. Now, in developing this line of thought, let's first find out what Psalm 22 verse 29 is all about. In fact, let's back up to verse 26. In the King James Version, it says, The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. And the next three verses in the New King James Version say, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Praise God. This is describing something to come that is absolutely incredible and phenomenal. A time when all the families of the earth, all the nations, all the races, all the ethnicities, all the people of the earth will be inclined toward God in worshipful submission, and they will all be devoted to the truth. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. That's when the King of kings and the Lord of lords shall set up the government of God in this world, and all things will be back to what it should be, paradise on earth once again, like it was in the Garden of Eden. And then that passage of Scripture comes to a completion by saying, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Well, verse 26 said, all the meek of the earth 
will eat and be satisfied. So what's it talking about that they will partake of, that they will eat, that will bring satisfaction and worship to their lives? Well, first and foremost of all, I believe it's projecting into the future, into the kingdom era, when the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. I personally believe that grand event will happen after the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to this earth. He's married to his bride, and the celebration begins. Praise God. And we will sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the redeemed of the Old Testament and the New Testament, all the prophets, all the patriarchs, all the apostles, the early disciples, everyone who's ever been saved and brought into a covenant relationship with God. What a celebration that's going to be. What a feast that's going to be. And how satisfying it will be to be a part of that grand event. But I believe it stretches further back in time, not just futuristically, but into the past concerning this meal that we partake of. See, Psalm 21, like Isaiah 53, graphically describes the horror of what the Messiah went through when he was crucified. It is such a profound representation of that, that David David must have been caught up in the Spirit to such degree that the Spirit of Christ expressed himself through David as if David himself was experiencing the pain of the cross. Because he starts out not just describing something happening to someone else, but it's the Spirit of Christ testifying in him of the suffering that would yet come. With one of the very cries that he emitted from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's verse one of the psalm. And then let's go down a little bit further to verses 16, 17, and 18. It's as if the Messiah himself is saying, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Well, that's definitely connecting with what happened on the day when the Son of God was offered up as a sacrifice for us, and he became sin for us, and tasted death for every man. Now, jump forward to the end of the psalm. It says, the meek will eat and be satisfied. The prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Eat what? Not just something in the future at the marriage supper of the Lamb, but something from the past. Because in John chapter 6, Jesus said, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He said, except a man eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he has no life in him. What's he talking about? Well, of course, it's a reference to the communion ritual, but more importantly, it's a reference to what the communion ritual represents. Because see, it's a natural celebration and reminder of a supernatural reality. Jesus was the Word made flesh. He was the Word of God in a bodily form. When the wind blew through his hair, it was leafing through the pages of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
When the waves of Galilee crashed over his feet, they were soaking into the sandals of the one who was Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, all the way through to the book of Revelation, manifested in a human form, the Word made flesh. So to eat his flesh is to eat the Word of God and digest it into your inner being until it becomes literally a part of you, inseparably. You become an expression of the Word of God in this world. In fact, the Bible calls you the epistle of Christ, living epistles, read of all people around you that you impact with your life. Well, what about the blood? The scripture says the life is in the blood. The life of an animal is in the blood of an animal. The life of a human is in the blood of a human. So the life of God is in the blood of God. And God had blood in the veins of his son because we are the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Did you hear that? That we are the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Praise God. And that is Acts chapter 20, verse 28. So if God ever had blood, he had blood in the veins of the Son of Man, the Lord of glory, when he walked on the earth. Well, if the life is in the blood, what does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of life. And the Greek word is zoe, the Spirit of zoe. So when you eat his flesh, that's representative of eating his word. When you drink his blood, that's representative of drinking in his Spirit, the Spirit of life. And by the word and by the Spirit, you become one with God. Because those are the two areas where God brings your heart and your mind into union with himself. That's the only thing that will satisfy you in life. No wonder it says the meek will eat and be satisfied. And that will bring prosperity into your life. And I'm not just talking about material possessions. In fact, let's go a little deeper into this idea of what it is to be the prosperous of the earth, because God calls you that. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-nine. you cannot deny that. It's in the word of God. So let's find out the proper and balanced and true definition of what that means. First, let's go back to the original Hebrew. I believe the only absolutely inerrant form of scripture is found in the original documents that were written in Hebrew and Greek under inspiration. And so, in order to find out what God is really conveying by certain passages, I believe it's important to go back to the Hebrew and go back to the Greek. Now, the word that is translated prosperous in Psalm 22, verse 29, is doshen. That's spelled D-A-S-H-E-N when you transliterate from the Hebrew alphabet into the English alphabet, Doshane. And it means rich or fertile. It's been translated into the words rich, prosperous, mighty ones, and you're going to laugh, fat ones. In fact, that's the way the King James Version translates Psalm 26, 29. It says, all they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. Well, I don't believe that being overweight is a prerequisite for being a worshiper of God. 
I do believe if there's a verse that has been incorrectly translated in the King James Version, it's that one. So I would discard the King James way of translating that verse. And let's go to the New King James way of translating that verse. And what does that mean? All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. The way I see it is anyone who partakes of the flesh and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, anyone who meets him at the cross, anyone who becomes a blood-washed child of the Almighty God, who embraces the redemption that is available there at Calvary, prospers as a result. Does that mean you're supposed to be wealthy and have a bank account that is just bulging at the seams? Could that be part of it? Is that never a part of it? What does prosperity really mean? Well, let's go to the dictionary definition. Number one, to prosper means to succeed in an enterprise or activity, especially to achieve economic success. So there tends to be an emphasis on that in our modern day usage of the word. To succeed in an enterprise or activity, especially to achieve economic success. The second meaning of the word prosper is to enjoy vigorous and healthy growth or to flourish. And that can mean mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, in your relationship with others, in every area of your life that is important, that is under the blessing of God, your career, your job choice. God wants you to prosper in all of these areas. But in order to support what I'm saying, let's apply our study of the Bible right now using what I call the law of first appearance or the law of first use. If I ever want to explore a concept to its depth in the Bible, one of the ways I begin examining that concept is to go back to its first appearance in Scripture. And you're going to be surprised at the first time you find this concept in the Word of God. It actually has nothing to do with financial prosperity. It has everything to do with the will of God and success in an endeavor through the divine inspiration that comes in response to prayer. Let's go to it right now. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 24. And in this passage, Abraham has commissioned his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. Abraham was old and well advanced in age. And so he called his servant into the room where he was. He had him place his hand under his thigh and swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that he would not take a wife for his son Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites, but that he would go to his country and to his family and take a wife for his son Isaac, which is exactly what his servant did, traditionally referred to as Eliezer. And he took 10 camels, loaded down with gifts for the family. And when he got to the city where Abraham's relatives lived, he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time the time when women go out to draw water, the Bible said. And he prayed this prayer. 
He said, O Lord God of my master, please give me success this day and show my master Abraham kindness. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. He said, let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Well, he asked God to give him a sign. And guess what? It happened because about the time he finished speaking and uttering that prayer, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And then the servant of Abraham looked at her and he began to question her. Would you pour me a little drink of water from your pitcher? And she immediately responded and said, I will draw water for your camels also. He was amazed, but he was silent because he wanted to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. There you find the word surfacing for the first time in Scripture. He asked, who she's related to. He finds out it's Abraham's relatives, and everything evolves from that point. Later on, he was explaining to Rebekah's relatives how he had originally protested to Abraham and how Eliezer had said, what if the woman won't go with me? And Abraham responded, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife from my son, from my family, and from my father's house. Once again, that's the first time the word prosper appears in Scripture. And so the very concept, according to the law of first mention, the law of first use, it's all about walking under divine inspiration. It's all about receiving responses from God in prayer it's all about godly choices in life. It has nothing to do with material prosperity to begin with. I'm not going to deny that is a part of the message of prosperity, but the emphasis in the beginning is something quite different. And uh, listen, uh, I need to bring out a little humorous fact right now. That was no small task on Rebecca's part. Because it's easy for us to throw out the phrase that she spoke, I'll, I'll give you a drink of water and I'll draw water for your camels also. But wait just a second. The man had 10 camels and a thirsty camel can drink about 30 gallons of water in 15 minutes. By the time she finished with the second one, the first one would be thirsty again. And so that was no easy thing to do because camels can hold an enormous amount of water for desert travel. 30 gallons of water in 15 minutes. Now you multiply that by 10, that's 300 gallons of water. And God only knows how much time it took. That was quite an act of compassion on her part. And certainly that was an indication of her 
standard of living and her character. Now, as we proceed in the Bible, the word prosper does overflow into the area of material possessions. Because in Genesis chapter 26, verse 13, years later, we find Isaac described with this very important word. It said the man began to prosper and he continued prospering until he became very prosperous. And interestingly, that was spoken about him during a time of famine. And yet he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. And it seemed like life was just going well for him in a time when others were suffering great lack. But the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Now, how do you balance all of this out? I believe that prosperity should overflow into every area of a person's life. First and foundationally, it should be indicative or descriptive of our spiritual condition. It should be a revelation of the fact that we are walking with God, hearing from God, being led by God, and flourishing in the things of God so that our lives are under the inspiration of heaven. That's true prosperity. And if you don't have that, any other reflection of prosperity is useless and empty. But I will not deny that God wants people to prosper in other areas as well. Remember, he said, I wish above all things that you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Well, how does the soul prosper? When you are a joyful person, when you are a peaceful person, when you are a loving person, when you are a righteous person, when your soul is stable and strong and filled with the presence of God and overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit and God is using you and God is blessing you, that is true prosperity. Does that overflow into material possessions and financial gain. It can. It doesn't always have to, but it can. However, once again, we need to bring balance to this discussion because where do you draw the line when you say, I don't believe in a prosperity gospel? Wait, 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 wait just a second. Where do you draw the line? By world standards, if you compare yourself to all of the poor, the poorest of the poor in this world. And I've been there. I've preached in third world countries where I would go through neighborhoods of thousands of people living in rudely constructed huts out of cardboard and cloth and sticks or laying on the ground when they slept at night. By the world standards, if you live in a house and drive a car, you are rich. You are prosperous. Now, I know when people go to an extreme of flaunting riches and flaunting the idea of prosperity and lavishing wealth on themselves when they claim to represent the gospel. Some people might draw back and recoil from that, and understandably so. But still, again, by the world standards, you're wealthy if you can choose what you're going to eat for your next meal. You're wealthy 
if you sleep in a bed. So would you deny yourself those things? Would you say, oh, I've got I've to get rid of my house and my car and my bed and my possessions and my clothes. I'll keep one change of clothes and I'll just live on the street. And that way I won't live contrary to the Bible. No, I, I don't think that's what God would ask of you. I know in my own life, I gave away everything I owned along with another brother in the Lord, and we went hitchhiking across the country preaching the gospel on college campuses back in 1971. That was the beginning of my ministry. I don't think God requires that of everyone. In the early church, people would sell their homes and lay all the money at the apostles' feet. No one spoke against that. That was for the furtherance of the gospel and for helping the poor. And so the apostles were given great wealth, which they then used for the advance of the kingdom. And really, it's taken people who were blessed financially in order for me to be able to do significant things in the ministry. Every mission trip I have taken has cost anywhere from $10,000 to $40,000. I've preached in India to crowds up to 35,000 people, but to rent the grounds, to pay for the airfare, to hold a pastor seminar and feed them three times a day and house them costs thousands of dollars. Somebody had to finance that. And it took godly people who had a belief system that included prospering financially so that they could contribute significantly to the work of God. And don't tell me that's wrong. I do believe it's wrong to divorce prosperity financially and materially from prosperity soulishly and spiritually. Because if you're not prospering in your soul, your prosperity materially is empty and without worth and without value. It's uh, really a, a diversion. It's diverting your attention away from God. They that would be rich are caught in a snare into many hurtful and foolish lusts that drown men's souls in perdition and destruction, Paul wrote Timothy. And so riches, wealth, can be a way that Satan entraps people. And yet it can also be a way that the kingdom of God is advanced. Because, see, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And if someone loves God and loves God's work, and that's at the top of the list, and underneath that, he does seek for success and prosperity as a servant of God, then his life is in proper balance. And certainly God blesses some people in that area, just like he blesses others in an area of spiritual prosperity, ministry calling, where they have effective ways of communicating the gospel in this world. But they have to be upheld by those who hold up their hands in order to do something significant for the kingdom of God. Well, we've touched on the idea of prosperity. We've got a lot more territory to cover, and I've got a lot more scriptures that we need to delve into. And so in the next podcast, I'm going to give you the prosperous of the earth, part two, and we'll continue digging into this important, vital, and needful area of doctrine in the Word of God. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, you're the prosperous of the earth and start claiming that without fear. Don't recoil from it. Dare to say, I am 
one of the prosperous of the earth, and then expect God to lead you, guide you, bless you, anoint you, use you, and flow through you as he advances the kingdom of God in this world. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shree, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given His people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.